Morning, everyone. I was told to give an announcement that next week we're having across the street from here at Harlinsdale Park the annual pilgrimage festival. And if you guys know what that's like, I guess a half a million people come over here, something like that. So what happens is the city is going to shut down the road just south of the church building here. So if you're going to be coming to the building tomorrow, you'll have to take Mac Catcher and come down Franklin Road. And then when we leave, we have to go north out of Franklin Road, and we won't have any access coming in. Unless you want to come like 2 o'clock in the morning. I don't know when they'll set it up, but <laughs> you can come early if you want, <laughs> or just come around. Uh, and speaking of memory, um, Richard sent me a most wonderful and edifying uh, article about those who have a lack of memory. Apparently, you are extremely intelligent. <laughs> and I was thinking, man, I must be like way off the charts intelligent <laughs> so thanks Richard for sharing that if I keep forgetting just know I'm a smart person <laughs> now watch I won't be able to get out of the building my head's all big <laughs> all right so sermon this morning take up your cross last week um when after Lynn and and Jerry were baptized into Christ and that afternoon had taken place, we went up to the reentry center and worshiped with them, and, and Thomas Snow, who's the directory of the Tennessee Prison Outreach Ministry, basically um, asked this question with regard to a passage in the Gospel of Luke about taking up your cross, and he says, you know, what your cross look like? You know, what is it that you are having to, to sacrifice in your walk with the Lord, and you're, you're talking to people who have been incarcerated, some for many, many years, including Lynn, who admittedly was basically systematized. I mean, he's just gone through the system for so long, he could not function in society. Um, he couldn't even use a fork. That's how amazing it is, because you only use spoons with your meals. So anyway, it's just one of those things that when he asked that question, got me really thinking about my cross and and so I wanted for us to, to look at this phrase and see what that means. Well, when we look at the, the first century cross, it's very different than the way we think about it today. Some of you, though be it probably few, actually have pendants or necklaces or some kind of um, a thing with a cross on it. And oftentimes when you ask people about those who have a cross, I'll ask, you know, what does it mean? And so you might have various things like the word of hope or faith or, or sacrifice, maybe in reference to Jesus, but it, it does not typically have that very negative picture that the first century had of the cross. In fact, prior to the first century, um, it's been thought that maybe as early as the Babylonians or the Assyrians um, starting off with the evolution of what is now then known as the cross. By the time you get to uh, Alexander the Great, the cross was used as, in a most am amazingly torturous manner um, when, when being executed. And by the Rome, Roman era, it had been, quote-unquote, ironically speaking, perfected. The cross were generally for criminal slaves... In other words, slaves who tried leaving their masters or had done something of a criminal activity as a slave or to those of treason, enemies of the state, whether you are a citizen or not. 
that was what the cross was used for. And what would happen was they would take this person and publicly display this person in that crucifixion. And it was a means of deterrence for everyone else watching. And so it was excruciating. In fact, that's the word excruciating comes from. It comes from crucifixion. Just the most horrific, painful death. And they would take that person and it would last anywhere from six hours to as many as four days. And if the Roman soldiers who could not leave their post until that person being crucified died, they would help that process along by breaking uh, one of the limbs that was holding them up so they could allow them to breathe. Or they would uh, start a, a smoky fire, if you will, so that that person would die from the inhalation of that smoke. This was a very negative And wanted to bestow upon Jesus because they believed him to say, oh, you think you're the king of the Jews. We'll see what kind of king you are. And publicly humiliated him in such. It was often associated with guilt, just as was mentioned earlier. And then you can see that this ultimately was to bring death to the person who was guilty of some crime. That's the image of the cross pre-Jesus. In fact, it was that way up until you get into um, upwards into the third century and fourth century in particular, when the cross started to take a turn. By the time you get to 325 or so with Constantine in, in charge with the Roman Empire, that the cross began to have a flip side meaning. But even then, this idea of the cross was beginning to evolve because of the teachings of Jesus. And what Jesus would do is take this world and turn it completely upside down in the way he applied things. And that's why he talks about those who are least would be greatest in the kingdom. If you want to live, you're going to have to die. I mean, all these things that are just paradoxical. And the cross was one of those things. I want you to see that from humiliation, Jesus turned the cross into one of humility. In John, in not John, but in Philippians chapter 2, remember in the passage in verses 3 and 4, let this bind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, he said in verse 5. After he talks about preferring others before yourself. My wireless went out. Oh, yeah, it did. I guess the battery went bad. All right, I'll let, I'll let Dennis fix that up real quick. Um, so when you, when you consider that this, do I need to speak louder? Okay. When you consider that this idea of humiliation, Jesus turns into humility. Okay, thank you. Into humility is just a very important aspect. Oh, okay. Sorry about that. All right. And it's on. 
the whole concept of um, humiliation turning into humility is found, as, as you can see in the passage in Philippians chapter 2, when he says, here's what Jesus did. He came, took the form of a servant, and in the likeness of men, basically lived in obedience, in humble obedience to the Father, even to the death of the cross, as I paraphrase verses uh, 7 and 8. And so that's a, a flip on the use of the cross. The other one was going from guilt, when you're guilty, to justification. When you stand guiltless before the judge. And so in, when you read Romans chapters 3, 4, and 5, in fact, all throughout those three chapters, 3, 4, and 5, is the whole concept of how a person is justified before God. That word is used so often that the whole point of the Apostle Paul is to note that you're not justified by the law, you are justified by faith in Christ. That's the whole of those three chapters. And he starts off with showing how justification comes through the grace of God, through the blood, where Jesus is on the cross, and those who believe that his dying on the cross and them following him through faith, brings about this justification. So you go from the cross being this concept of humiliation to humility and from guilt to justification. But ultimately, the cross through the teachings of Jesus is one not of death, but one that brings out life. And so you have passages like Philippians chapter 3 and 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and other passages that bring this, this aspect out. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 1. This text is often um, just, you know, not often remembered much by, um, by us in the way of preaching today, but it's a very important aspect of our walk with the Lord. We use this passage, passage to teach much about baptism, but look at what he is really saying. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be of, made of no effect. Well, what was the whole purpose of the gospel? It was to bring salvation to those who believe. It was to bring life to those who are dead in the trespass of their sins. And so again, the, the effect of the cross was to bring life and not death. So what you have in these, these pictures here in the New Testament scriptures is a beautiful picture of the cross taken from something that would be so horrific. So what does that have to do with us? Because this is what, where the rubber meets the road as far as I'm concerned. This is what Jesus was teaching about the cross. And this goes a little bit with what Mark was talking about when he asked the why, because that's what I was wanting to do, was give you the, you know, why did these, this dialogue take place the way it did? And has everything to do with this subject matter of following Christ. So back to Matthew chapter 16. I want you to go, go there, and we're going to spend some time in Matthew 16 as well as in Luke 14. But notice the backdrop and see if we can get some understanding. So here in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has been with his disciples. He had asked them, you know, who do men say that I am? And Peter does, in fact, say, you are the Christ, right? You're the Messiah. The thing about Peter as with all the rest of the disciples is they believe that this Messiah would be just like King David and sit upon this throne and rule on earth. And because of that mindset, Jesus then says to him after, he says, well, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. God revealed this truth that I am the Messiah to you. 
And then he goes on to state in verse 21 how that he would go to Jerusalem, verse 21, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. Now, if in your mind you're thinking, my Messiah, Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, if he's going to die, how can he rule? He's not so worried about the resurrection. That might have just gone right over his head. But the fact that Jesus would die means I lose the very Messiah that I just proclaimed myself to be attached to. And here's his response. Peter, verse 22, takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke his master teacher. He says to him, far be it from you, Lord, that this shall not happen to you. I won't let it happen. I love you so much, I'm willing to risk my life so that yours would not be destroyed. Because you are the Messiah. Now, mind you, Peter's intentions are perfectly wonderful. He loves Jesus. But his mindset is from an earthly vantage point, a, if you want to call it a Jewish vantage point, but it's an earthly vantage point. It is mindful from that standpoint and not from what God's plan is. And therein lies the rub. You see, when Jesus says you need to deny yourself, you're going to have to deny the way you think, the way you do things, because it's not about you. It's not about what you think and how you live. You've been made in the image of God, so you need to reflect His image as a result, which means thinking the way He thinks speaking the way he speaks, and living the way he lives. That's how you're going to have to deny yourself. It means putting off that man of the flesh. We'll get to more about that in just a minute. Then he says, take up your cross and follow me. That's Jesus' response after Jesus says these words. And these are the words that are very important for us. Jesus says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. So that leads us to reflect on that. If Jesus is saying to Peter, you need to be mindful of the things of God and not mindful of the things of man, what does it say about Peter? What it means is that Peter's mind, as good as his intentions are, are not heavenly. Heaven-minded, if you will. It's centered on the earth. And, and for, for all the human reasoning, we could defend Peter for what he was trying to say and his good intentions. The fact remains that he was not centered on the things of God. Even though he had been taught the things of God, even though he just heard from Jesus... It is the will, basically, of God that I go to Jerusalem, that I be tortured, right, through the cross, and that I die, but that I'll be raised again. That is the will of God. And what Peter's supposed to do is say, amen. As hard and as difficult as, as it would be, saying, then let God's will be done. In similar fashion, go to Luke chapter 14 now. Another situation, and Jesus applies the same principle under different circumstances, right? So in Luke chapter 14, 
Read this with me. Great multitudes went with Jesus in verse 25. And then he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. You think about that. Jesus is on the road from Galilee to Jerusalem. He's on his way in the last moments of his life before the final week. And he's letting the disciples know, all great multitude that was wanting to follow him, if you really want to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to change your relationships. Some of you are going to have to put away those family relationships because it is a hindrance between you and me. And so for all that we can look at, in fact, there are other passages we can talk about, and I'll bring that up in the following slide. Followers were taught to bear their cross, and this is what it looks like. You deny self, you take up whatever that means, your cross, and then you follow me. If you don't do this, you cannot be my disciple. That's a far cry from modern American Christianity. Modern Christian, um, Americanized Christianity looks like going to church, spending some hours in the pews, and then you go home and just live whatever life you live. Now, I would venture to say that everyone is... Every one of us in this room would say, well, we know it's more than that. But the way we practically live our lives, what is it really like? Is it like just that? For some, the answer is yes. But it's not the right answer, practically speaking. Practically, you need to deny self. You're going to have to bear your burdens. And there's going to be a heavy burden. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be trials that come your way because you follow Jesus. That's what it means by taking up your cross. And then you'll be able to follow him. So when we look at bearing our own cross, what does it entail? Well, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, and you can read from verses um, 7 following, but basically taking up your cross means you count everything as rubbish. So what is it in your life that means a lot to you? that like you would have difficulty giving up for children children do you have any toys that that you just you would never want to give up like you just love it with all your heart soul and mind I'll forget who it was just yesterday I was telling I, I was telling someone yesterday or the day before I can't remember when I had a six million dollar doll when I was a little boy growing up did you have one of those John <laughs> six million dollar the bionic man Right? Those of us who are older know that. Kids, you don't know who the Bionic Man is, I don't think, unless, unless Netflix has that kind of shows now. But uh, it had this piece of uh, thing where you go through the head and you see it through the eye, the bionic eye, and it was like a telescope. And I got it for Christmas when I was eight years old. And I looked through that thing, Maui, tropical Maui, Christmas Day, and I looked outside the house, out of our family room, and I saw on, on Mount Haleakala, Snow. Pretty cool. I didn't want to give that doll up. The idea of, of taking up your cross and denying yourself means you give up something that would stand between you and Jesus. From a childlike mentality, that would have been one of those things I would have to give up. My bionic man doll. Jesus was saying some of you are going to have to give up father, mother, brother, or sister because they stand between you and him. 
you need to count it as rubbish. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. And so note the message that Paul gives to the saints in Philippi. Go to that text with me, if you will, in Philippians chapter 3. Look at what he says when, when he says this. Verse 1, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is our only God. There's no other gods but him. That's the concept. Rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of the dogs, of evil workers, of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision, he says, of Christians, who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Right? I was circumcised the eighth day. I was of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and concerning the law, a Pharisee. I mean, if you want to take confidence in anything, I can take confidence in these things. Concerning zeal, persecuted the church. Concerning righteousness, which is in the law, I was blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I counted loss for Christ. You can take things, take relationships, or you can take pride. Whatever is of great value to you, and he says, you count all those things as rubbish. And that's exactly what he says in Philippians 3. For some people, it may be one thing. You might have a good and godly life. You might be able to live morally upright, right? Say all the right things at all the right times. And so from an appearance standpoint, you've got it all together. That's this passage in Mark chapter 10. I'm going to close with, not close with the sermon, but close this point about the teaching of the cross and burying our own crosses. Go to Mark chapter um, 10 and read this passage with me because you may have a different circumstance, but it's going to follow the same pattern as what is given here. So, Mark chapter 10, verse 17. So here is Jesus, and Jesus is approached by this rich young ruler, and basically what he's asking is, what do I need to do? Because I want eternal life. At least I say I want it. Verse 17. As he was going out on the road, one came running, running, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus says, Why do you call me good? There's no one good except for, for one, God. You know the commandments, Jesus goes on to say to him. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He's going through the Ten Commandments. The rich young ruler says and answers him, Teacher, all these things I kept from my youth. The guy's a really morally upright Jew. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And with those very loving words, he said, There's one thing you lack. You go your way, you sell everything or whatever you have. Give all that, that you had from your monies. Give it to the poor. Take up your cross. Follow me. 
everything else, you're doing good, but this is what you lack. This is what stands between you and me. Jesus knew the obstacle was so real that that's what he called him out on. And the guy's reaction would break anyone's heart today if you have any feelings for this person. He goes away sorrowful. He had great possessions. And very easily for us, we could add in, and he did not want to give those possessions up. We live in a country full of possessions. And oftentimes, our value, our reputation, everything, our status in life is based upon stuff. And so, this could very easily be said to us in select manner. But even if it's not this, it may be pride. It may be arrogance. It may be this, this whole um, reputation. Maybe it's the cares of the world. Maybe it's relationships. You know, I need this person more than life itself. Whatever the situation is, that becomes what you need to give up and sacrifice. It becomes part of taking up, up, taking up your cross. And so when we're looking at these things, we ask yourself, well, what will you do to follow Jesus? That's what we all need to ask ourselves. We don't need to be looking at anyone else. We don't have to point any fingers at anyone, just inwardly. What is it that stands between me and Jesus? You know, we may not have sin as far as being against anyone. We may not be sinning against someone else, although I highly doubt that. At some point, we sin against others. But we may fail to deny ourselves. We live in the most narcissistic country, I think, in, in history. I mean, Facebook is evidence number one. We have just, everything is about me. And we, not only is it about us, it's comfort. We want ease. Who wants to work? Who wants to go through trials? Who wants to have it difficult? Yet Jesus said, you're going to have to follow me. And following him is a path of difficulty. Not that you look for it. It'll find you. By serving Christ, it will find you. And as a result, then, it could be relationships. It could be activities you're engaged in. It could be just stuff, right? So whatever it is that keeps you from following Jesus... Part of that cross is taking it up, denying yourself. That's the picture of Jesus when he took up that cross, literally, whatever it looked like, and I don't know what it looked like. It, supposedly, that T-shaped cross didn't come till probably a couple of centuries later when, when the image of the cross started to evolve. Probably, I think, by the 6th century before you saw, saw paintings along those lines. But anyway, that's a picture of just taking up your burden, and Jesus said, that burden is light. And you're wondering, how is that burden light? You're, you're sending yourself to the, to the cross, and then you're going to die. How light is that? He said, it's a whole lot lighter than if you don't follow me. And see, when it comes to Christianity today, we feel like we can have our cake and, and eat it too. I don't know if that's the way the phrase is supposed to be, but anyway, it's like one of those things, the cake and the icing. Have everything. I can be a Christian, but I don't have to serve Christ. 
just serve my own desires. And Jesus said, not so. When Jesus came, he denied himself, humbly obeyed the Father's will until he went to his death on the cross. That's Philippians 2. That's what he's teaching for us to follow. And so we all need to do some reflecting, evaluation, going, what is it that keeps me from giving my life to the Lord? Here's this rich young ruler, and, and, and his possessions were the only thing. And he walked away sorrowful. If Jesus were to have that conversation with you, how would you answer? Lord, I'll follow you to the very end. I know that I know that I would answer that question without hesitation, that I will follow you to the very end, but I also know that I'll mess up royally doing so. I know I will be not 100% successful, even though the desire is to be 100% successful. Because all I have to do is look at my own selfishness, my own pride, and I get to see that I lack. But remember when I was telling you about the cross at the very beginning of the sermon? How it goes from humiliation to humility, from guilt to justification, and from death to life? The guilt that I put on myself knowing that if Jesus were to ask, and ask me that question and how I would want to answer it, without hesitation, mind you, that I will follow you to the very end, I know that if that cross was based upon my performance, I would not be able to have it. Neither would you. None of us would. That cross that you're told to bear has already been born for you. I want, I want you to let that sink in. It was born for you on your behalf, on my behalf. Otherwise, it would not be called grace. It does not take away from the faith that you need to have. And that faith is executed not in word, but also in deed. And therein lies what Jesus is teaching us when he says, what will you crucify to follow him? Think of those things. Is there anything stopping you from becoming a follower of Jesus? Or brethren, is there anything stopping you as a follower of Jesus to truly follow him? The life of a Christian is a life of following Christ, right? That's what makes Christians Christians, followers of Christ. And when Christ was able to give up whatever it took to do the Father's, Father's will, that's what he wants of us. And I pray that as you go through your daily walk, that every one of us will strive to do so denying self. Now, if you're here this morning, you're going to have this. This question, have you decided to follow Jesus? And that question is not just for you to ponder and think about, but for one that can bring about a reaction in the course of your life. If your decision is to follow Jesus, he wants you to die with him. And in Romans chapter 6, after that three chapters of being justified by faith in, in Jesus through his blood on that cross, he then gives you the picture of the cross in chapter 6, verse 6. 
when he says that there are those who, be, who will die with him, to be crucified with him, right? So that the old man can be put away to death and that new man can rise to walk in newness of life. That's the picture that Jesus wants for you. That's the invitation for you if you want to follow Jesus and you have not been. And I ask again, brethren, if you are in need of prayers, by all means, please use the opportunity so we can pray for you right now. As together we stand and sing.